We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. I'm Joe Quinn, and with me in the studio are Neil Bradley. Hello, listeners. Pierre Lescadron. Hello. And Juliana Barambuin. Hello. This week, we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Alida Edwards. Dr. Alida is a licensed, licensed clinical psychologist with 20 years of, of practice who graduated with honors from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Through her many years of practice, Dr. Alida has treated people with painful issues of perfectionism, shame, indecisiveness, control issues, and a fear of needing others. This constellation of issues kept appearing in a majority of her clients, regardless of gender, age, or cultural ethnic group. Rather than solely focusing on coping with symptoms of these anxieties, Dr. Lida has helped people go inward, facing the specific fears that cause these symptoms. She has found that these painful symptoms, defensive in nature, would lessen considerably or simply vanish when the core issue was addressed. Dr. Alida is also the author of an excellent book entitled Fear of the Abyss, Healing the Wounds of Shame and Perfectionism. And the book lays out the core understandings she has come to over the many years of her work and research in the area of human psychology and mental health. So, welcome to the show, Dr. Alida. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, that's great. So, the first thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Lita, is in your book you make repeated reference to uh, PCS and PCS persons. Uh, can, you, can you define what PCS is and how a person would know if they are a PCS person? Yes. Um, I use the term PCS for perfectionism, control issues, and shame to describe a type of personality. It's not a diagnostic label, but a type. Uh And these are people that have certain traits or issues that do not exist in isolation, but they all go together. So sometimes you'll hear someone refer to a person as a control freak or as a perfectionist or as an anal person, but the truth is there's a constellation of issues that all go together, that have the purpose of defending against the real core that is wounded. There's a certain core pain emotionally that PCS PCS people have that they're defending against. So the perfectionism, black and white thinking, the dread of being disappointed or disappointing others, needing to be in control, etc., These all go together, and this is why I call them the spokes of the wheel, because Mm -hmm. they don't exist in isolation. A real PCS person will have either all of these traits or most of them. And again, they're, they're defenses, but the defenses themselves become very painful and problematic. Mm hmm 
Um, just before I go on, I wanted to mention to our, our listeners that uh, this is a call-in show, so um, if you want to call in and ask Dr. Alida any questions, uh, our number's on the website. It's from the U.S., 718-508-9499, and 001 before that for international calls. Um, so what you just, what you just described, uh, Dr. Alida, is it, it sounds a bit like the issues that someone who would be diagnosed or may be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder would also exhibit to some extent the control issues, the perfectionism. I mean, is there what is the difference between someone with PCS, as you've described, and someone who would be diagnosed as narcissistic personality disorder? Okay, that, that's a good question, and some of the people who have written to me have asked this, so I, I really would like to address it. The first issue is that, remember, people with a PCS type of personality, we're not going by the label. By the time they're seen, we're going to have an anxiety disorder, a depressive disorder, a narcissistic personality disorder is a label. So we shouldn't really compare a type with a label. Okay. Um, because right off the bat, we kind of have like an apple and an orange. Mm-hmm. Now, given that, so if it's okay, what I'd like to do is change um, narcissistic personality disorder to, say, a personality type with extreme pathological narcissism Mm -hmm. and then I can answer this better Um, certainly people with low self-esteem who are perfectionistic in their relationships will show narcissistic traits and they'll need to be needed Um, they'll need to do things sometimes better than other people perfectionism alone is, is a comparative kind of thing and can be narcissistic but they're doing this out of fear and pain. They're trying to just keep their balance. Ironically, the the narcissism of the PCS personality, and I say this just having worked with people for so long, um, so many years, it's not malicious. It's really based on keeping the other close and not having them leave. It's like, see how much you need me, and proving to themselves, I'm not bad. I'm not bad, because what the PCS person is doing is fighting against acknowledging some kind of inner feeling of badness or low self-worth. Now, the person with extreme pathological narcissism has what you could really call an excessive degree of envy of others. And this kind of person lacks the sweetness often seen in the PCS personality. Hmm. The pathological narcissist can't feel admiration because he or she can't tolerate something good about something else or something that someone else has if it's not them. It produces an envy in them so strong that they really want to take down the other person in some way, either psychologically or sometimes in a more concrete way. Um, The PCS person typically 
typically, excuse me, is not motivated by envy with fighting off this low self-worth. A person with extreme pathological narcissism, which is what I call what you were referring to, mm-hmm. has a destructiveness to them. And they, they envy to the point where they wish ill on someone who has had good fortune because it wasn't them, it was somebody else. So they're real, you know, and they'll induce envy in others. You'll see excessive bragging, hmm. um, not even listening to what the other person says, but they want to be envied. They want to kill the envy in themselves, and they really, they really want to kill that that whole feeling and do what they have to to get that done. So while the PCS person doesn't really understand what they're doing, I would say pathological narcissism is not really quite so benign. I will say there's like an intersection. There are pathological narcissists who are anything but perfectionists. They're not PCS people. But there could be some PCS people. Again, I would say there's a little intersection where you could have both. But since the PCS person cares so much about being a good person, Mm. um, there's really an essential difference here. Mm. So you're talking about an essential difference at the core, but that it may manifest in ways that make it difficult to, to distinguish sometimes. Yes, without looking at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes PCS people do sometimes diminish people who are close to them. And when they're in therapy and they realize this, they feel horrible. Mm. They really feel bad because that's not what they meant to do. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about that's a sense not of, what they meant. Yeah, you're talking about a sense of remorse or or an ability for remorse or guilt or uh, not guilt but remorse, let's say, that is absent in a in someone with NPD. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. There's an empathy, a compassion. Mm-hmm. Um. PCS people very often do care for others. They're just carrying around this baggage. So, mm-hmm. And yet, when they do realize what they're doing, there's a terrible remorse because that's not really what they meant to do. And mm-hmm. they do have the ability to feel admiration and to be happy for others. So mm-hmm. there's really... There's nothing malicious, really, in the PCS person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more shame-based than envy-based. What you said, that's a good way like to say it, like a remorse, a compassion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and, I mean, the title of your book is Fear of the Abyss, um, Healing the Wounds of Shame and Perfectionism. But in terms of the abyss, um, what is that? Is is it something concrete? Is it is it something? Is it a psychological construct? Is it uh, or more of a, an emotional construct? Or um... I guess um, psychologically speaking, I guess it's really as concrete as anything. What I'm calling the abyss is the specific feeling or fear that the person has 
that drives all of those spokes of the wheel, all of those Mm. defensive symptoms. And this will be specifically different for different people, but it'll Mm -hmm. be similar in terms of what it is. So the abyss is is essentially a fear that gets activated by something in the environment or something that someone else does. The fear is of uncovering mm-hmm. what is really there, but okay. what's really there, what's feared, mm-hmm. is a feeling because okay. people, children internalize what's been done to them. So it could be the kind of thing where someone, if I can use a short example, um, if someone mm-hmm. has an abusive father who's an alcoholic and and doesn't pay the bills and the family lives hand to mouth and mom and the children are getting abused and it's really horrendous, a survivor of this kind of, of terrible childhood would be a PCS person because these are these are survivors after all, really. And you might get a person who thinks that drinking is just wrong. So anybody who even has like a little glass of wine at the holidays is just a bad person. That's it. Mm -hmm. Because to them, the idea of even taking a sip represents being like dad, who's not simply an alcoholic. He's really a pretty lousy human being and an irresponsible one and who Mm -hmm. breaks the law and so forth. So it's something very, very loaded of feeling like, well, this is really what I am, so I better just keep this under wraps. And Mm -hmm. that's their personal abyss that they Mm -hmm. do anything at all to defend against. And and they could also project that outwards onto other people. For example, in the example that you used of someone who had an alcoholic, abusive father, if they, in later life, if that uh, person sees someone else who's drinking, they may have a negative view of them that is unjustified. Absolutely. Yeah, that's okay. totally right. And I have a question, Alita. You know, we have such a subjective vision of ourselves. Often we have all those narratives and uh, most of the time to cope with a reality. So how is it possible to know if you have those uh, PCS traits, how to evaluate objectively our psychological profile. Okay, let me just make sure I understand the question. So you're asking, just saying with the complex realities we all deal with, how can somebody know if they have a PCS personality? Yes, exactly. And uh, actually I was mentioning the the fact that often we have a we have a lot of narrative and a lot of uh, a subjective evaluation of ourselves. Sometimes, uh, let me give an example. You have people who are workaholics, 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 and uh, because they think uh, they are lazy, so they keep doing more and more and more because they have this deep belief that they are lazy. But in the end, they are hyperactive, so they don't have an objective evaluation of themselves. So. How do you, can you evaluate objectively yourself and see if you are uh, within this PCS spectrum? Yeah, that, that's a great question because um, 
it's really not so easy to evaluate oneself. And your point's a good one because those workaholics do tend to be PCS people and they're abyss, what they're afraid of, what they feel inside, that terrible false belief is that they're lazy. And if they let up for one minute, they're lazy. So they have to stay in constant work mode in order to prove they're not lazy. But under not lyingly, they really do think they're lazy. It's like I tell clients, you can't, no one can press a button that's not already there, and that's their button. Now, I'm not saying every single workaholic, but in your example, that just happens to be a very good one with a lot of people who meet that type. I think some people don't realize have this constellation until they're in crisis. And then they come in and explore because it takes a certain degree of self-knowledge to really see yourself, to see your strengths, your weaknesses, your fears, your hopes. Um, It takes, at least in my view, a combination of mindfulness and insight that really give a full self-awareness. I would say if we're trying to tell people how they would know if they're a PCS person or not, you can often go by what other people are telling you. If people get angry at you and say, oh, you stop trying to control everything, Mm -hmm. Um, and you hear certain things and like, oh, well, nobody can do it as well as you, so you may as well just take it over. When you start to see people having negative, unfortunate responses to you, you start to get an idea that you've got some issues around this. And usually when that happens, um, people will say, this is what they tell me when they will come into therapy. They don't come in and say, you know, I'm a PCS person and I have these issues. They'll come in because of a relationship that went wrong or problems at work or something happened that made those defenses go crashing down, some mm-hmm. people do come in and they'll say, I mean, some, some very introspective people will say, I've noticed patterns in myself. But I would say, it just if people are wondering if that's what they are, that if you have a lot of depression, very frequent depression and frequent anxiety that's shame-based and based on needing to be perfect and needing to counteract the shame. And you have trouble letting go of control and feel like you have to just be in charge, that there's a good chance you have this kind of personality. Mm-hmm. We we have a few uh, a few questions. Uh, we have a we have a little chat room going here, and there's a few questions coming in that are um, essentially asking: um, Can a PCS person change these patterns, um, and how do they do it? I mean, is therapy the only answer? Oh, I'm glad somebody asked that because. Um, The reason I wrote this book is because people would come in, you know, I suffer from chronic depression or I have a panic disorder. And no one addressed what is going on with them underneath. The reason I wrote this book is to say, yes, there really is help. 
there is healing. And the way to go about it, I would say, is therapy. Um, certainly, you know, I hate to say this, but reading the book would not hurt. Um, what I try to do, you know, is, um, is, is very gently lead people into being able to tolerate deeper and deeper self-awareness with self-respect and self-love and compassion. And it's very possible to change. Um, You don't do it by addressing any of those individual traits or spokes of the wheel like, like, okay, uh, you know, with, I'm only going to work tonight till 11.30. I won't work till midnight, you know, when everybody's gone at five. Mm-hmm. Um, you do it. You do it by working your way towards that hub of the wheel, towards the abyss, and confronting that sadness that, that, scared, that scared them for so long. Mm-hmm. And it may involve some mourning and grieving. Usually when people get there, they say, this wasn't so terrible. I was scared of this all my life, and it wasn't really so terrible. So, Mm. oh, a million times, yes, um, there is help for it. Not just coping, but but healing. There certainly is, and I have seen it many, many times. Mm. So, I mean, you talked already about uh, people experiencing crises or a crisis in their life, and... uh, I mean, that seems to be, from reading your book, that seems to be one way that people get to really address and heal these issues uh, when almost as if the thing that they've been fearing, this abyss that they've been fearing their whole lives, they come face to face with it and realize uh, that it didn't kill them, let's say, that they survived. And Yes, yes, absolutely. And... um I really like it when I get people who do come in in crisis because mm. they're very, very close. Now, mm. they, they don't like being in that shape. They're, they're terrified no. and they're hurting a great deal. But when you get a PCS type in crisis, which you will if there's been a humiliation, you know, like if they lost their job, if you, if, mm. you know, in the book, there's the person who loses the job who's sad because there's no money coming in, but there's the one who's like, well, I'm just a loser now. Mm-hmm. They're very close to the core issues, and you can address the core issues with them, um, you know, as you're addressing the crisis itself. And then what will happen is the person will be better off than they were before the crisis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, as a psychologist, there's really no greater pleasure when somebody says, you know, at the end of treatment, I'm really glad this happened. I really was miserable before, mm-hmm. you know, and now I'm living a good life. So, yes, now that's a hard sell to someone who happens to be in crisis, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know if any of us does really well. You know, I certainly don't like crises myself. But, no. um, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a wonderful opportunity, truthfully, psychologically speaking. So could we say, Dr. Alita, that when somebody's going through a crisis, it's kind of like a call from the subconscious or whatever we want to call it, or the, the abyss even, 
uh, screaming for some resolution for all, all those repressed things as if the person was ready at that point to deal with certain things, in which case each crisis would be a sort of gift? You know, I, yes. Yeah, oh, you put it beautifully, and I wish I had said it like that. It was beautiful. I agree 200% with that. I really do. Um, I can't improve on that. That's exactly the way I see it. So, so in terms of the abyss, would it be correct to say that all of the people that you have, have treated for, for PCS traits um, that all of their issues or their abyss stems from childhood or is it something that can happen later in life as well? Well, I follow the school of thought that our personalities are formed developmentally in childhood. I, I know there is adult trauma, certainly. Absolutely mm-hmm. there is. But in terms of a whole structure, and we all have a structure, and it's a complex structure, it has its roots in childhood. It does. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned in your book uh, very briefly that people have P- uh, PCS tendencies, and you talk about uh, different siblings, for example, getting a different experience. How much would you say is nature and how much nurture, if you know what I mean? Uh, well, I've been struggling with that one for a long time. I think I've practiced like 22 years, and well, I started out and I was just very defensively saying it's all uh, nurture because I'm a psychologist, you know, and that's all we can deal with. But I've really, I've really come to see that the game of genes is very intricate and important. There are people with very small children who have told me that they'll have one and say, pick up your toys now, and the little one says, okay, and the other one will give mom a look like you've got to be kidding. Um, So, you know, I think I do, nature really does play part. I do think that when you have a childhood, and I don't know, what percentage of people have loving, safe, secure, appropriate childhoods. I don't know if my view is slanted because of what I do and who I know, <laughs> but to me, to me it looks like life is just darn hard. And yeah. the, the troubled people, you know, they just can't wait to get married and have kids and they don't realize um, and, and it, what this will entail, and there's nothing in high school to prepare anybody for any awareness. There's nothing. And um, so I, I really think it's both. I think with what I call, and what well, Winnicott is the one who said this, not me, but the good enough parenting, I think will soften the negative and strengthen the positive. Mm-hmm. But I think... You can see in sibling groups that they're just very different. Sometimes there'll be one sibling and everyone says, oh, so-and-so is so selfish and a troublemaker, and everybody else is very nice. And I don't really think that that person was necessarily mistreated. Then there Mm -hmm. are people who have survived everything going wrong. It's just hair-raising, and they end up 
very moral people. They end up like PCS people. So mm-hmm. I, I think I think when you get people from an abusive background who are PCS people, I think we're talking nature because mm-hmm. a lot of these are strong people. If you think about it, they're they're afraid all the time, and there's no order or safe time or place, so they try to create and impose an order on a chaotic, dangerous world. And I think that's one reason the PCS person tends to be very intelligent. And I think this is why they survive instead of turning into abusers or instead of having a, developing a psychosis. Mm-hmm. One of the things I don't like about my job is there are people I admire more than I can tell you. They survive things I know I couldn't have. And then to say to them, now these are things that save your sanity and your life, but they're not serving now. So now Mm -hmm. we need to do more work so that you're not like this. And I always tell them there's nothing fair about it. And I'm sorry Mm -hmm. because I feel bad, but there's nothing fair about it, but it it is just the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think... I think sometimes, you know, in the sibling groups, when they all have severe addictions and they're in trouble with the law and they're violent, and then you have the one PCS person, I truthfully think that person had stronger genes. I do. Hmm. That's very interesting. Um, it seems to me that it's, uh, it's all, the problem really is that it's kind of multi-generational or it spans generations. It's passed on. Uh, the problem is passed on from parent to child who then grows up, becomes a parent and passes it on to their child. Uh, I mean, in, in your book you say um, that the abyss can also be a self-image based on how a person was described or made to feel as a child. A cruel, distorted ver- vision of, of oneself. This could be a parent who was overly judgmental or very critical of a child and child um, I mean, in one sense, you say that some children grow up to not want to be like their parent was uh, because they were mistreated or, you know, for an alcoholic, for example, uh, a person, a PCS person can grow up and say, I'm never going to touch a drop of drink. But a child who was uh, harshly judged and criticized for a lot of his or her childhood uh, may internalize that negative image of themselves and then go on to become a judgmental or critical person themselves, like their parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a slightly a little more complicated uh, because it would be great if, if, if all children who were, who were reared at the hands of somewhat abusive parents grew up to be the exact opposite, model citizens and wonderful human beings. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as that, I don't think. No, it's not as simple as that. Um, it is it is funny i there are some amazing people and i mean you can tell in the book i have a soft spot for the pcs folks mm-hmm. even with some narcissism i i you can i mean it probably shows the yeah. the respect and love that i have uh-huh. but what you say is very very true and it's it's really not so easy. I think problems are multi-generational. There are therapists that do 
a gene, I mean, I don't do this, but they do a genealogy chart at the beginning and they go mm-hmm. back because things really do get passed down and, um, and many of them do do the same thing. And that's, it's very unfortunate. I, I should also, it, it's very complex. I know that when I see the courage that my clients have shown and they cry and they share with me and they take me back with them what they've gone through and they come out at the other end, I mean, one thing I do love about my job is I get to say to them, all of this crap ends with you. It's mm-hmm. over. Your mm-hmm. kids don't will not have it. Um, it ended with you. Your line of whatever this kind of abuse was or mistreatment stops. And then even people who were not abusive but who were critical and who mean well, this is just all they've ever known. Um, like you said, they, they do the same thing. They're very achievement-oriented. They're not aware what they're doing. Again, you can say it stops with them and to remember to consider feelings. But no, problems are multi-generational. You're, you're completely right. Mm-hmm. You know, book, I, I wish you weren't, you know. Yeah, me too. <laughs> in your book, mm-hmm. Dr. Arleta, you mentioned several examples of patients that identify the source of their personality traits, the species um, constellation, and identify which parents was the source of uh, the issues. And you give a um, recommendation about how to interact with the parents, with the source, and you, you developed an interesting way this notion of boundaries. Could you explain a, a bit more how boundary can play a healthy role in the new way of interacting with the with the parent. Yes. Um, now, I do have to just say up front, I, I, I mean, I'm seeing in my head two people right now it didn't work for. These were mothers in this case. They were just really, they were, they were bordering on psychotic. It just, it just didn't work with them. These were out-of-control people very, who, that was it. But in most cases, the setting of the boundary, um, when people do love their parents and they want to continue a relationship, but they don't want it to be dysfunctional and they don't want to keep chasing after what the parent can't give, um, as they come to feel more adult themselves, they're able to say to the parent, I don't want to discuss this anymore. I don't want you to bring up anymore what, you know, how I failed the test in the fifth grade. Um, mm. If you do, I'm going to need to hang up the phone and discontinue the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to be mean, but I also need respect. I'm an adult too. And here are my limitations. Mm-hmm. And... Now, I'm kind of blurting that out. When you work with people, of course, you do it in steps, and they know who they're dealing with and how to say it best. But in my experience, people have had some pretty good success with setting the boundaries. Mm. They've had pretty good success with that. Um, Most parents will really 
well, they'll test them a few times because it, remember there are parents who are like three years old in adult bodies, mm-hmm. so they're mm-hmm. going to test and they're they're going to resent this and it's going to be a new way of interacting. But if you gently and firmly keep setting those boundaries and they want the contact enough, they will modify the behavior. They haven't changed what they're like, but they've changed the behavior enough for the adult child to be able to interact and not get so hurt. Mm-hmm. We've had a, a couple of comments about uh, therapy and some people saying that in the current state of the uh, economy, a lot of people can't afford therapy. Uh, so in that case, what do they do? And I suppose the answer would be at least to to get your book. And there's a lot of exercises in there that can be quite helpful. Yes, I, I think the way the exercises are in the book and uh, the way the chapters are, you could call the book a type of therapy mm-hmm. almost. You know, I mean, therapy involves another person, of course, but mm-hmm. I think that that someone can really can really go further. And um, I've had a lot of people write me, like from out of state and and some in other countries, and they say, "Do you know a therapist who does this kind of work?" And you know, I can tell them what to ask for, um, see if the person is open to looking at the book. I also want to say to people, don't be shy about asking if there's a sliding scale. Mm. Don't be shy. Therapy is expensive. We have we have a ton of overhead. Um, even though psychologists, uh, you know, in America, we've been cutting down that overhead, but you still need an office. I mean, that's not going to go anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. there are certain things that you need the professional associations to join. I mean, it's ridiculous what they cost. So, you know, there are certain things. But I know when people call me and they, and I've tried to keep my normal fee pretty reasonable for people, even though they do have it, if they say, do you slide the scale? I, and I'm not the only therapist who would do this. I know I'll say to them, what could you manage? And they mm-hmm. tell me, and I, I, yeah, I feel that people have been honest with me and we've worked something out. I've not been able to take every single person in every single circumstance, of course not, but I've really tried to do that. So I've tried to really help a lot of afford a huge amount of money. Um, so I, I really would say to people, don't be shy. Call up and say, do you have a sliding scale for people who mm-hmm. just simply can't afford that? And if people say no, don't be embarrassed. Just go to the next one because plenty of people ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, previously, you mentioned that you don't think it's a good idea for people with uh, certain PCS traits, perfectionism, control, or... Um, to to attack that kind of head on, you know, for example, if you notice if a person notices that they're very controlling and they have a little bit of maybe OCD about certain things, that certain things have to be in 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 the in the right place uh, all the time. Um, that it, you think it's it's not such a good idea to just try and cut back on that. Just consciously say, okay, I'm not, I'm gonna gonna let that one. Let that one go to hell. I'm not going to try and control that particular situation or, or place. 
oh, well, I, I think this is what people do as they get better. Okay. And I think people who don't have it so severely do do that. I mean, that's, a, I think, a sign of maturity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, I think it, is, it is really good to do that and just say, oh, you know, the hell with that one. I can't, I can't control everything. Well, mm-hmm. just being able to do that has moved away from the PCS position. Um, in your book, you, you dedicate quite a lot of time to um, or space to the problems that PCS can cause in relationships, in adult relationships between, for example, people dating or married couples or whatever. Um, and you actually you make a you make a great point that is I think is worth repeating to and for everybody to to think about is that people marry with no thought or training about their own needs, but then become angry and upset when their partner does not or cannot gratify them. And it's not hard to see how that kind of marriage could produce children who grow up to have the same issues as one or other or both of their parents. Right. Uh, that's right. And also the children are then have to meet the needs of the parents, which is not uh-huh. really their function. Um, this reminds me of, of the, the question about is it a gift, something wanting to be recognized. I think I, I would almost say this, this is not like their God-given function to meet all the emotional needs of the parents. Um, mm-hmm. This is not really why people are born. Um, hmm. but, but yes, that is true. What happens a lot of times is you get this little mediator who's a nervous wreck, who's trying to meet the needs of both parents and his or her needs just go forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I have adults who are still, um, mistreated by the parents who are still protecting them. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. they've they've got huge empathy, because they were raised to have that. Mm-hmm. And on the topic of relationships, too, um, you mentioned the difference and why it's so important between interdependence versus codependence. Can you expand a little bit more for our listeners? Yes, interdependent. By that, I mean. Um, both people acknowledge having needs and needing the other. They're not conspiring for any kind of dysfunctional behavior. No one is denying being in need. So both people get to need and also to feel needed and appreciated. And this is something that's often very, very hard for the PCS personality because I've seen that so many people where the relationship is faltering and the PCS person will keep doing more and more and more and more with the message, what would you do without me? You couldn't possibly manage without me. And, And the other person is like getting angrier than they were before. Because nobody, nobody wants to be the incompetent to partner with the person who needs to feel like they're needed for every single thing. Nobody mm-hmm. really wants that role. Pardon um, me. Yeah. Um, you, you also mentioned, 
and I think it's probably fairly common that people in relationships tend to, um, in romantic relationships, tend to one or other will, in some way, subconsciously um, try to fix their parent or fix a parent through that relationship. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean that's. And this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that's obviously a problem because they're not really present in the actual relationship itself. But I mean it's uh it's almost a yeah, I don't know, a dissociative state uh, where they're not really fully present with the other person. They're they're almost I mean you you mentioned also projection and projective identification. Well, you know, the less insight one has, the less present that person is. Um now, I I really respect the unconscious, and I think it's always there. So I don't know if I think anybody is 100% present, but it would be nice to get to like 80 or 90%. Um, it, it, is, it is very sad. I mean, our issues do do follow us. I mean, some people wanted to fix a parent who was sick and they grew up taking care of a a sick mom or dad and it couldn't be helped. It was just a sad situation and Mm -hmm. they use it in a good way and they grow up and they go into the health field and they say, well, I couldn't save my mom's life, but I'm going to try to help other people with their health. And this is a good thing. And some people whose parents are dysfunctional become wonderful social workers and they deal with families that are very chaotic and they and they try to help them. And you can be aware of this and do it. But when you go into a relationship and you're not aware, um, for the PCS person, there's the element of wanting to take away blame self-blame because if you if say you have a parent who's you know with bursts of rage or abusive children blame themselves and the parents often tell the children it's their fault so what some people will do is unconsciously seek out a very volatile and they think if only I can find the perfect behavior and the perfect words uh, this person won't do this anymore. Hmm. And in that way, they think, and again, this is not conscious, they think they can fix the parent, and in fixing the parent, of course, they fix themselves, because if the parent's fixed, then it means I, I, didn't, I didn't cause, you know, dad to act crazy. Mm-hmm. But that fixed. doesn't happen. They don't fix themselves no, in it, that situation. It never works, but it, it's amazing how these underlying fantasies create these patterns, and people will do it over and over and over again. I mean, there was there was one woman I saw. I mean, she was not a PCS person, um, but you know, she she was like on the fifth abusive partner, and you know, not all men are abusers. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, she just kept she was good at finding them. Not this doesn't justify the abuse. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that unconsciously she was bound and determined to take an abuser 
and behave in such a way that he changed. And, of course, it, it never happened. It never happened. And she ultimately needed to face that horrendous life with her father and how she really felt about it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and basically start fresh. So, no, I mean, that's the problem with things that we symbolize and try to repeat and fix and look for in adulthood. If they work, they, like you said, they never work. Mm-hmm. The, Dr. Alita, the problem of perfectionism, um, now obviously in itself, in some contexts, to see perfection can be a good thing. So if you have a skill, you might want to perfect it um, for yourself and for others. But that's not the perfectionism we're talking about, obviously. Um, no. I think it would be fair to say that the person isn't actively seeking perfectionism. It's more that if something does not meet their expectations, then they can be very disappointed. Is, is that getting it right, the ballpark? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for following on from that, then, uh, the, it's the expectations, then, that will... So in an extreme case, like you just mentioned, um, somebody's going from one abusive person to another, they're, they're not really... They're not consciously seeking it out, but lo and behold, it's happened again. Um, right. Is it because perhaps the the unconscious dynamic that's playing is that they want maybe this time I can fix the person and perfect them and create a perfect relationship? Or is it more that this is their idea of perfection? This is what they know. I think it's more unconscious. Um, Now, not everybody agrees on this. You know, I'm kind of a psychoanalytic maniac, I admit that. Um, Some people would say it's learned and this is what they know and certainly there are things like that. But in in my opinion, which, I mean, I do do think it's right, that's why it's my opinion. Um, I think it's really that they're trying to perfect. I think that's what they're trying to do. And I think they have... they're they're trying to get a clean enough, perfect enough slate to erase feelings that have been screaming to come out and be acknowledged for a lifetime. I think that's what they're really trying to do. Okay, they're seeking and, a perfection. Would it be fair to put it like there's, it's a perfection that will shield you from having to turn and face those emotions screaming at you from the abyss. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that's, that's very, that's perfect. That's perfect. And in fact, for all of the spokes of the wheel, for that list of traits, they all serve the same purpose. Perfectionism seems to be a trait that we all notice more, and it, it's, it's more of a pain, really, you know, when we interact with the world. But yes, mm-hmm. the purpose of it is if you do everything perfect, nobody can criticize you. Mm-hmm. And the reason it'd be bad if they corrected you is because you're already criticizing yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, when so you he... face that, 
you know, when you're able to say, well, I don't do very well with such and such, and someone says to you, you don't do so well with such and such, you, you're not upset. You just say, oh, yeah, tell me something I don't know, right? Because you know when you're not upset. You've already mm-hmm. owned it. Yes, it's, it's really heartbreaking because it, what you're describing is the children who were denied the right to be uh, normal human beings, which is imperfect, and they were denied that right via some kind of a trauma uh, in, in, in their early years, and, uh, and they spend the rest of their lives uh, covering up that pain caused by the trauma and the hurt uh, by, by trying to be something that it's not possible to be. It's such a, it's a real, uh, yes. it's a real number that is done on people, you know, uh, and it's, it puts them in, a, in an impossible position. It it really is very tragic, truthfully. It's, um, I don't treat children. You know, I spend some years as an advocate for, you know, children and family services doing evaluations, and I'm glad I did it for a while, and I'm glad I'm not doing it now. I, one reason I prefer to treat adults is it's heartbreaking enough because if you listen if with you if you listen with everything you know and with your heart you'll hear the child speak and cry and it it's very sad you'll feel the pain and i tell myself you know as a psychologist what gives me the strength is knowing that legally my clients have their freedom mm. they can walk if they want to mm-hmm. To treat children, I, I really admire people who do that mm. because it's it's very hard. And then you have parents who will pull the children out when they see that yeah. they have an attachment to someone else. But what we're doing to children and watching this, um, and I watched some very severe cases. I mean, I saw children who had IQs at age six in the superior range. And, you know, they would be tested every year, every couple of years, and it would go down, down, down. And I got a call once from a university where they saw a teenager and they said, now you thought she was gifted and we've got her as low average, which used to be called dull, but they changed the name, they changed it to low average, but it's not good. And why do you think there's a discrepancy? Do you think she has a learning disability? I, I said, no, I think she had a horrible life. And I think she couldn't concentrate. And learning a bunch of stuff was very boring. And in order to keep getting a good IQ, the way the tests are, you have to have more and more knowledge as you age. And she doesn't. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she's going to look like she never was gifted. And and the fact is, she was. And the fact yeah. is, she is. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I mean, I've seen this happen emotionally, but I've seen it also happen in schools because children being traumatized usually are, are not good readers. They have a lot of, you know, reading takes a lot mm-hmm. of patience. And in English, we have so many, we have more exceptions than rules. It takes the wherewithal to keep making mistakes and to learn doing it. And for these poor children who can't bear to be wrong and they're so anxious, so they're mislabeled as slow. And I've had a lot of adult clients who 
really were gifted people, and PCS people are, I have to say this, I, I, they're, they're brighter than average. They're an intelligent group, and they don't believe it. They just don't believe it because of the things that happened in school. And um, it, that's another hit, you know. It's like, you know, I sometimes say to my clients, you know, sarcastically, that abuse is a gift that keeps on giving, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, sometimes I just have to say stuff like that because I feel so bad. It's um, Yeah. But it, it is... It is very, very sad what we're doing, and it would be easy enough to really have a couple workshops for high school kids, to have an elective in college that just taught a little insight. It would be easy enough, and we don't, at least, you know, at least that I know of, we don't do it. The system doesn't, doesn't, doesn't take care of that aspect of, of people's uh, mental health. And it seems it's kind of like a, a global disease right now. I mean, you you were talking about people uh, losing their IQ, and it's it's you can see it year after year, generation after generation, especially in the last years, how society is becoming less and less intelligent or proactive, or you know, and you know, how do you how do you see it on a global perspective? You know, do you notice these changes in society, and and do you think that maybe um, the only thing that could help people would be an, a social crisis. You know, I mean, it's not that I want one. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, in the U.S. we have enough of them going on, God knows. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, in terms of that big perspective and understanding your question, I, I hate to say yes, but certainly theoretically that might be a yes. I, globally, I really see it as horrible. I mean, a lot of times when I just think of the wars and the conflict, and I before mm-hmm. everybody calls narcissism egos. I, you know, however that got started, but it did. But I, I look at that and, and I just think, wait, this doesn't need to happen. Let's mm-hmm. have a little mindfulness here. Let's have a little insight. You know, globally, to tell you the truth. I'm pretty scared. Um, I mean, I can, I can whip myself up into a state of despair just mm. over many of the concerns that I have, you know, right here at home for me, and mm. and globally, globally, it's even it's even worse. I don't see how we can be a whole lot better without addressing some awareness and mental health. I just don't. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the increase of awareness um, through through the truth, whatever it may be for oneself, for the world out there, is the only palliative that mm-hmm. has worked for me. I think it has worked for a lot of people. Yeah, it's um, mm-hmm. it's interesting when you talk about it in the U.S. and you know uh, dramas and traumas in the U.S. It, it's interesting. It makes me think of uh, of. The way you know, for example, nine eleven attacks were used, um, because behind, uh, if you have a lot of people with PCS, and I don't know how many people, I don't know if you know of studies as to how many people would theoretically have this trait in a given society, but um, it's it's like that. There's ultimately 
regardless of the spokes or the type of uh, traits that manifest in anybody, they, they all um, resolve down to a, a fear, a, a, an unrecognized fear. Um, and on 9-11, for example, I, I remember thinking that, you know, this was a, there was a mass kind of a, evoking of that fear among the population that was then used to, you know, Wait to war, justify all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree I with mean, that? I mean, I do think. It, yeah, I mean, I basically, I basically do. I think people do have a lot of fear, and I think, I mean, this is one spoke. Um, yeah, I know we can't cover every line in the book, but um, it, you know, the black and white thinking mm. to me it is is scary, truthfully. It's very scary. Um, I, I've always been that's uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. You're right. It is yeah. a PCS trait. It is a PCS trait. No, it, it is a PCS trait, but it's also a trait of people who have problems that are more severe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but no, that that was. You're right. It is a PCS trait, but so are some other things. But I, mm-hmm. I, you know, but yes, I I think if you think there's only one right way to do things, mm-hmm. and that everything else is wrong, um, how can this lead to anything other than conflict? Mm-hmm. I mean, it it really can't. Yeah, the point the point that I'm uh, that I'm kind of making or that I'm thinking of is that you have a, a large number of people, for example, in the U.S. with these kind of traits, like maybe that kind of black and white thinking that is ultimately benign. You know, it's it's not a personality disorder. It's ultimately uh, it's not uh, malicious, but that it was it, it it can be used by unscrupulous people in positions of power. To, to mm-hmm. get people to move in a certain direction, you know? And I don't know how much right. they might be aware of that or consciously aware that they can manipulate people in this way because of childhood trauma, essentially, you know? I, you know, I don't know if this sounds cynical or, or what, but I think there are people who are aware and manipulate. Um, I mean, I'm I'm aware and I think about this. And I think... I think people are very easily led, and mm-hmm. I wish it weren't. I wish it weren't so. I think they're very easily led, and um, you know, and with the black and white thinking, yes, certainly they can be manipulated, mm-hmm. and and this is why I think um, I know. I mean, a lot of times I I, I think of this, um, of things that are going on and the troubles of the world. I mean, I think about it a lot and I care about it a lot. And sometimes I feel bad thinking the work I do one-on-one. It's like a drop in the bucket, but it it is Mm -hmm. what I do. But I I will say to people, uh, you know, now you've just shared with me when you felt shaky about this black and white belief that you clung to it even harder. Mm-hmm. And because they'll, they'll tell me that, and I'll say, "What do you think?" Because that's a gem to to reach that and to mm-hmm. reach it on your own. 
and I'll say, what do you think that means and what can you keep with you forever? Yeah. What does that mean? Because I think that's really, that's where you can manipulate people. Mm. That's why I think it's, it's such excellent work that you're doing because not only are you helping people in their personal lives to, to live happier and more fulfilled lives, but you're also freeing them potentially from uh, partaking in grand scale evil machinations potentially, you know, um, in, in the sense of it frees them from uh, being so easily manipulated by their emotions when you kind of give their emotions back to them, give control of their emotions back to them. I really, I really hope so. You know, it's funny, back like a million years ago when I was in my 30s um, and I was seeing a psychoanalyst, he said to me, he said, and I hated it, you know, he said the intellect plays a very small part in what we believe and what we do. He said we first have our opinions based on our emotional needs and then we use our intelligence to rationalize them. Yeah. And um, I think he was right. I, you know, who enjoys learning that? But it's, um, I think it is true. And I think making it so that people can think because you can find self-righteousness in any point of view and you can find self-righteousness in very violent, brutal times. So mm-hmm. that's really not the answer. The the answer is freeing up to thinking, like you said. Yeah, because it filters everywhere through society. The fears that we keep inside filter through who we are in general, what we believe the authorities say, and, um, you know, it just makes for unhappy people. And, now, and right now, like you mentioned in your book, people are just coping. Antidepressants, you know superficial fun or relationships only to cope instead of realizing that facing that fear and that's one of the main things that I got from your book actually I, I really like the way you you explained it because it's not it gives people courage actually I think to look into the dark part parts you know there's there's this whole new age movement or people who want to look only at the positive and have positive thoughts and the problems you just carry them with you so I think your work is really important in that sense, that seeing the dark part, even when it's in, in a, a personal bubble, if you want, and what's closest to the individual at first, I think, I think it can really free somebody's mind to actually looking at the world at large and feeling, feeling that they do have some control, they can do something. Yes, I, I agree with you. I, I know... Um, when I was younger, I, I don't know when this hit me exactly or what I was reading. I was probably reading one of my historical novels, but it it really hit me that everyone was human and had human feelings. And I remember thinking, oh, no, this really complicates things, doesn't it? Because it mm-hmm. does. It does. Mm-hmm. And we all want things to be simple, and and they're not. And then you think, even even if a government is doing terrible things, there are still human beings there. There's just no way out of that. Oh, no. And that My human question. range is, is is big. No, I'm sorry. No, go on, go on. 
No, no, I've um, finished. Okay. Um, to go on on a macrosocial scale, um, as Joe pointed out, um, these PCS traits can be used to uh, influence people for nefarious uh, political plan. But um, while reading your book, uh, you list uh, you mentioned family as a big influence that can create PCS traits. And I was thinking as well that our society as a whole, our, our modern society, keeps reinforcing those PCS tendencies. Uh, just a few examples. When you see those Photoshop models on every magazine, on every TV advertisement that are setting some perfection, unattainable go- goals for everybody watching it, or when you see the, the school system, this permanent competition for the best marks, the best high school, the best college, the best diploma, the highest wage, the highest position, our whole society is permeated by the, those values that reinforce the, some Latin PCS uh, tendencies in us. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's so, so true. It really is, and it's, it's just horrible. I always think, you know, if the family doesn't get you, society will. And it, it's awful mm-hmm. because not everybody can be the number one in the class. And I'm not sure that being number one in any given thing is the whole picture anyway. I mean, certainly it's not. Mm-hmm. Certainly it's not. And, you know... I, I think that is the whole emphasis. Everybody wants their kids to do well in the standardized tests. There are people that that keep giving them enrichment, even though they're already good students, so that they'll keep being ahead and appear gifted. And it's it really it really is terrible. Everyone wanting to be on top like that, and I, I know how terrible it is because a lot of clients I've seen were people in their 40s and 50s who were very, very wealthy and successful in what they did, and they said they were just totally empty, and they were having a real crisis, and they wanted to do something else. And they would say, you know, all I know how to do is make money for a company that makes money for another company that makes money. And, yeah, I don't know how that finance stuff works, but, yeah, I've seen, you know, a lot of people who were in that, and they were so unhappy. They said, I haven't done anything for other people. I haven't done anything for the earth or for animals. This is all I've done. And they really were, they really were in crisis. And uh, I, I think... I think we really, well, yeah, I certainly don't have any answers here, but I feel like we need to do something where people can do work that's meaningful to them and to others and to still be able to have a comfortable life. Mm-hmm. And, but we don't respect everything equally, and we do respect too much how much money people make, and it's just a mess, but I've seen firsthand the people that were in crisis, and on the outside you would think they just have everything. You mm-hmm. know, there's three houses and you know, whatever. And so, I mean, it's not good for them either. No. 
Um, Dr. Alida, I would like to go back to a point you made earlier when you were talking about relationships, uh, but now in general, you were talking about these fantasies that people get and basically the fairy tale that never comes true. And um, But you, in your book, you also mentioned how good fantasies are. Now, can you make the distinction? Because it's really hard, at least for me, it's really hard to think, you know, of an ideal life or an ideal world or, you know, I mean, you kind of have an, a vague idea sometimes, but it's how do you get people to go from, I don't know what I want, I don't know what, I, what I'm meant to be doing, to actually waking up that part of themselves that says, I always like this or I want to try this out. Well, I, I'm a big proponent of fantasy. Um, I, I think it comforts us. I think that's where creativity comes from. Um, it is how we figure out what we want to do and how we know what we'd like. And a lot of the PCS people have no idea what they want to do. And to me, that's so sad because, you know, I've had a lot of fantasies and I think I think they've helped me. And you know, I'll say, well, would you like teaching? Well, how how can I know? Uh, I mean, I know a lot of things that I would like or not like based on knowing myself. Um, you know, if you're like, if you've got a horrible fear of heights like I do, you know, I remember when bungee jumping became a big thing and I said to my husband, if someone gave me a million dollars, I wouldn't do it. I, that That's horrifying <laughs> to me. And it's, it, you know, but I've had clients who said, you know, one was a teacher and she said, I want a job where I'm appreciated all the time and validated. And I I, I couldn't even think of one where you're, where that's how it is all the time. But the need for validation was so great that, that she couldn't even get to what she likes. But I... I do tell people, you fantasize away, even if you're fantasizing being president, which doesn't seem to me a great thing, but it, no matter what it is, look at it and what you, what you like. What you like, when I taught child development uh, way back when, you know, I used to say to them, um, if some of you were... You know, and I couldn't go into all the PCS stuff. It was just one little semester, and it was on development. But I'd say if you like to tell people what to do, but you're basically ethical and kind, you might want to consider being a caseworker because you're supervising adults mm -hmm. to protect children. And a couple people hung their head and came to me after and said, I think I would love doing that, but it isn't right to like telling people what to do. And I'd say, no, if you use it right, it's okay. If you use it right, it's a good thing because some people need to be told. So I think, I think really fantasizing and really letting loose with what, with what you want. Um, it comes to you. It's very sad to say, I have no idea what I'd like and what I wouldn't unless I try it. Because you don't have the time to try everything. You have mm. to use what you know about yourself to, know, to put yourself there and to know if you would like it or not. 
Mm-hmm. You know, in, in my case, I, I started reading psychology as a teen, and I thought, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And I used to be a computer programmer at a, a young age, and people would tell me their problems, and I'd get reprimanded, you know, rightly so, get back to work. I was a technical writer, and I didn't want to get back to work. I wanted to hear what they were saying, and I thought, okay, it's time to go to school and to just do this dream and take care of it. And I, I think when people are too inhibited, I think they've learned a shame about like what people call daydreaming, that it's somehow bad. But if you read a lot of fiction, whatever does it for you, like fiction or poetry, or not things to learn, things that, that entertain you, I think it loosens something up. And that's when you start Imagine yourself doing different things and you will be able to say this isn't for me or this is for me or a category where like, well, this one aspect I might have trouble with, but if I could get over that, I think I would like it. So fantasy lets you really travel around in the absence of trying every single thing. Mm. I guess it's like kind of going back to a more... Uh, to your childhood or the childhood you didn't have, right? When when you were taught to basically behave like an adult or play was bad or or it inspired shame in you or things like that, you kind of forget how to go back to that state where you don't have to be afraid of taking a step or, or imagining things. And it's very, very hard for most, for a lot of people, I think, to go back to that and, and have fun or try new things and... Well, I, if I can interject, yes. um, doctor, um, just before Dr. Lita answers there, something she said in her book that comes through very clear is that something that might, in this case, block the ability to fantasize in a healthy way is because the adult child spends inordinate amounts of time, at rather energies, holding back in order to maintain that perfect facade, in order to not, in order to avoid the abyss. Criticism. Uh, yes, criticism and so on, and it's beginning to free those energies that would allow more creative parts to emerge, mm-hmm. and then you can start to say, "Oh, I like, I don't mm-hmm. like," you know. Yeah. Yes, I, that's that's definitely true. Um, as people do get freed up and they do face more things, the fantasy life does open up. Um, mm-hmm. I have a lot of clients; they'll fantasize people who were abusive apologizing to them mm-hmm. and they'll fantasize playing hard to get for a while before they forgive them mm-hmm. and they, you know they're wonderful fantasies mm-hmm. they they so, really are wonderful fantasies yeah so there's maybe a caveat though that I mean fantasy getting people could maybe end up using fantasy and a fantasy life as a way to buffer themselves against it could almost be one of the spokes Well, it, fantasy is one of the spokes, um, along with self-esteem, because the inhibited fantasy life is something that we just see so much in the mm. PCS personality. Mm. And and people but, have, have always said to me, you know, it's hard. Mm. 
But what I mean is, uh, I mean, someone could get carried away with a fantasy and maybe dissociate a lot and live live their life in a kind of fantasy world as a buffer against the, the abyss type of thing. And in that case, it's maybe not such a good thing. No, no, that wouldn't be such a good thing. And I, I think with everything, there's the good side and the flip side. You know, it's like you were saying about perfectionism. It, there's a kind of perfectionism I'm describing in the book, but if you're writing a paper, for example, you know, you have to edit it and you have someone else edit it and you go back several times to really try to make it so there are no mistakes in there because that's your work and you want it to be as good as possible. You're not doing it because you're in this agony about it means who you are. It just means that you want the finished product to be nice. There are very real mm-hmm. reasons for that. So mm-hmm. I, I think fantasy could be abused. Of, yeah, of course it can. I mean, and, and let's face it, I mean, if you look at, I mean, you know, this poor schizophrenics, I mean, they're mm-hmm. trapped in these nightmarish fantasies and, you know, God forbid, I, you know, nobody would really want that. But I mm-hmm. think with the PCS personality, while there might be a fear of fantasizing too much, mm-hmm. I doubt that somebody coming from that kind of personality type would really need to worry about doing it too much. Mm-hmm. Although the fantasy, you know, in, the, in the bad sense, as Joe was mentioning, might come from expecting a perfect relationship, for, for example, mm-hmm. dreaming of a perfect job or dreaming themselves as perfect. Yes, and, and that's, um, that's where the beliefs need to change and the perfectionism needs to change. And again, mm-hmm. that's using fantasy not in the service of good psychological health, but using it in mm-hmm. the service of, of the bad or, you know, the negative. That, that's definitely true and if I could make one other point related to that with relationships a lot of people have said to me you know I really want to get married but I don't want to be disappointed you know and I'll have been going with the person for five years mm-hmm. and um, I don't want to be disappointed and what they're really saying is, is they want the person to be perfect and they're afraid if they commit. And I always say to them, you will be disappointed and you will disappoint. And if there is love after that, whether it's romantic love or friendship or any kind of love, it's the real thing because it means being accepted and accepting with flaws and imperfections. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're endearing, really. Nobody wants mm-hmm. somebody perfect. No one yeah. I know. So I, I think I think that really is part of it. So yes, I think that's a fantasy that would change when somebody addresses disappointment and the perfectionism that leads to that dread of being disappointed. Mm-hmm. You, you know, to find out that your loved one... Uh, is capable of, of, you know, getting into a mood or being a little snooty. Everybody has these things. Mm-hmm. And that just has to be accepted. Can, um, the PCS, PCS stands for um, Perfectionism, Control and Shame. Could you list a few of the other 
traits, the most common traits? Of the, yes, sure. Um, well, rigidity and black and white thinking, that's one. Um, another, like we just said, is a, a fear of disappointing others or of being disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, another is needing to control things and sometimes mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's one that gets people into trouble a lot. Mm-hmm. Another is difficulty making decisions. Mm-hmm. And if if you've ever seen that in action, it, that's really heartbreaking. Really yeah. heartbreaking. Um, yeah. The you know what I call the inhibited fantasy life, or using fantasy in a an unhealthy way. Let's group those together, and then in relationships, needing to be needed, but being afraid to need. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. would be. Those would yeah. be. So would be the e- big e- ones. Mm-hmm. E- e- the, the analogy you have in your book is is very useful. We, we, we've mentioned it in passing here amongst ourselves. Each of these are like a spoke uh, on a wheel, um, and at the center you have the hub of the wheel, and there is the core self or the wounded part, and. Any number of these spokes can light up, maybe a life situation arises or a relationship issue, and two or three spokes together might, if you could picture them, light up if they're, if they're, if they're irritated or something, something is provoked. Um, but, yeah, so well, what I really liked about the analogy, in fact, was that it's kind of frees you from trying to think of all this in a kind of one-step, two-step linear way that we have to understand that all of these things are connected very much to like a real center, a real, the, the, and uh, oh, more importantly, that the real issue is under, is beyond the, the, the surface, beyond the diagnosis. Oh, is somebody, you said in your book, it's very funny, in fact, the way you describe that people will come in and, and they will tell you what their problems are and, and that's it. So I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Joe Bloggs. I'm a perfectionist, and what can you do to help me with it? But uh, when you get out the wheel analogy, they need to understand that, well, there's a reason why you're perfectionist, and here you go. And you get down to the core issues, which lie at the hub of that wheel. And perhaps you, you, you want to describe or explain a bit more about that analogy. Okay. Um, well, to start with, when I was writing the book, I, I, you know, I was kind of going crazy because books are linear. Yeah. And I said to my husband, joking around, I said, I wish I could get like a sphere and write on that and have people just mm-hmm. turn it, you know. I, I, I really, how can I do this? And then he said, well, why don't you think of this as a wheel with spokes and a hub? So the wheel, and I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Um, that really says what I'm trying to do because um, how do you get out of being linear? And that's really what did it. And it, it is like a wheel because people come in and they say they have a whole list of of quote-unquote flaws. And I'll say to them, no, you don't really have ten. 
you've got one issue. You've got one. And these are just the symptoms. And granted, those symptoms hurt, and they become problems in their own right, but you still just only have one. And I think this is where the hope is. And it's not false hope. It's real hope. Because it's okay to be flawed. And I I really don't think any of us would be here if we weren't. I mean, what would really be the point of a life if we were perfect? Um, It's just not about that. I know it's not. So I think think having these circular interlocking symptoms and just realizing there's a hurt in there. There's a hurt. And if, if you face it, it's really not that bad. It's not that bad. It'll feel like a release. It'll feel like a pressure is taken out. Mm. And that's what happens. And it's, yes, I, I know there are therapies where it's like if if people, you know, are OCD-ish and they wash their hands 50 times. It's like, okay, this week try to just get it down to 40. But what I care about is the pain that makes them feel so dirty that they need to keep doing it. That's what I care about. I don't care if they wash their hands a million times. That's not the point. The point is the reason why they need to do these things and have these things. And once it's faced, it's really amazing, but there's like a softening to the personality. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my, my clients who was probably the most rigid person I ever had, very, oh, very, very smart uh, person, and, you know, I saw him for like a year, and he shocked the heck out of me and told me he was taking a Reiki class. Mm. And um, I, I said, you are? You know, and I had mentioned in passing that I had taken it and enjoyed it. I didn't dwell on it. I forget how it came up. But, you know, I didn't want to put I, – I didn't say that much. I didn't want to alienate him because I knew he would think that was totally – insane and then he told me he was taking a class and really liked it and was really good at it and he he said I hated being that way I hated being rigid and judgmental he said I can't tell you how horrible it was and I couldn't help it Mm. and he he said I feel like I I just threw it in the trash and it, it was really a beautiful a beautiful thing to see. So I, I think it is very important to address these issues as spokes and to see them as interconnecting and defending against knowing what that abyss is. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about the abyss, there are two quotes uh, under my eyes that can seem a bit enigmatic at first, and maybe you can expand about them. So those two quotes are as follow. The most dreaded fears are things that have already happened. And the second one is what she feared most was the fear itself, as is often the case when examining the contents of one's abyss. Okay. Um, Well, the part about 
what is most feared has already happened. Yep. It has. The, the, the pain, the humiliation, the degradation, uh, the feeling that one's humanity and dignity were taken away, which they weren't, but it can feel that way. Mm. It, this is from the past. This, this, it did already happen. The trauma is in the past. Now, the nature of trauma makes us feel like it's looming over us all the time, but it is, in fact, in the past. And visiting it in the past when you're safe and when you're adult and you do have certain freedoms is very, very powerful. Now, of course, it's not in the past if if you have a protected abyss and you don't remember the past and you don't acknowledge the past and what it did to you. But what people have to get beyond is no matter what terrible things were done to them, and it, not all PCS people have had terrible things, but Many have. I, I've gotten a lot of emails. A lot of people just said their parents meant well, but they were the same way. And then about half of the people really did have horrible abuse. And it really takes some exercise and some work to go back there and to to remember what was done and to really understand that someone bad can do anything to anyone. And that's not who that's not who the victim is. It's who the abuser is. And mm-hmm. that's very important. And words really don't get you there. You you have to remember to understand it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, one way one way is like if you look at people with a terrible illness, you know, their bodies do things they wish they didn't, but they still are human beings with dignity. Or I'm an animal lover, and, you know, an animal that was mistreated still has, has dignity and deserves a lot of kindness. So no matter how absurd or humiliated or degraded anyone has made someone else feel, it's important to look through the eyes of having a firm grasp on your own humanity and your own dignity. And then what's feared will truly be in the past and stay in the past. Mm-hmm. If, if so, that made sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a few questions just on, on medications. Uh, what's your opinion on the prescribing of medications for issues that are PCS issues, essentially? Well, you know, I, I'm not uh, such a gung-ho drug person. It, you know, um, I don't think there's any pill that will really help towards personal growth or help people become more aware and heal, but do think if somebody is suffering a great deal with depression or with anxiety, and sometimes that suffering is such that they can't even do the work to heal, Mm -hmm. I think then that medication can be a good thing. 
um, I, I kind of feel like medication is overused. There was some paper, I can't remember what it was, but several years ago that said in the U.S. something like 93% of the population had been on antidepressants at some point or other. Wow. I, you know, that's really sad. The whole thing that's is sad. That's a real, you know, real indictment. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it is. I, I, I mean, we're we're doing something something wrong. You know, wrong, some needs yeah. are not being met, and it's. Um, but when I was younger, I just thought, oh, medication can't do anything. It's more pure if you just do the therapy. That, that was my black and white thinking. I, mm. Now I really feel like there are people who could really benefit by the medication who want somebody to just have a, a pounding heart and be up all night. I don't want anyone to go through that. That's horrible. I mean, mm. I, I, think, I think medication could help. I think with the depression, it can take an edge off. I, the part that I feel that, that to me is sad and that I don't like is that some a lot of people just go for the medication and don't address the issues. You know, and I guess that's their choice, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not my favorite yeah. way. No. So you're saying basically as a, in, a, in extreme circumstances where it's really necessary as a kind of uh, as a way to um, facilitate the person to actually continue with therapy, they may be useful. Yes, I think I think sometimes it is, yes. And mm-hmm. um, now the thing that's funny is uh, PCS people a lot of them don't even like to take, you know, an aspirin mm-hmm. because of the control thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's a funny thing. But, you know, I, I saw someone once who could not, it was so sad, just could not stop crying and had a horrendous life. And I said, listen, I said, I'm, I'm really the last one in the world to be pushing drugs. This is so not me. But I really think you could benefit, and not forever, just mm. to take a little edge off. And it was like, no, I, I have to do it myself. I don't want anything controlling me. But what ended up happening is uh, I... I did refer him to a psychiatrist that I liked a lot. He was a, you know, a down-to-earth guy with a sense of humor. He was really nice. And he did go on an antidepressant for like five months, and they helped tremendously, and then he started to wean off, and he did great Mm -hmm. therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just don't like when people think there's a pill for everything and you don't need to grow, you know. it, Mm -hmm. It won't work. Mm-hmm. In your research or clinical practice, Dr. Alita, have you found that dietary changes can play any kind of role in either coping and or healing? Well, I I believe that, yes. Lifestyle, I believe that completely. You know, mm-hmm. again, I don't think it'll... It'll get rid of issues. I I was with a holistic practice back when I lived in Chicago. You you know, I'm in Florida now. Um, But back then, and I really, I loved it. 
you know, an acupuncturist and a chiropractor and, you know, people were advised on lifestyle and supplements. I think it's better to take something you're deficient in than to take a drug that by brute force, like forces an organ to do something it doesn't want to do. I think there's a real difference. Um, I think all of these things matter. I, I think, to me, the danger is in any discipline for any of us to think we have the whole picture because we don't. But there were a lot of people mm. I referred and I said, if you eat healthier and and you do such and such, it's going to make a difference. And I think some of the holistic people sometimes, you know, could forget almost like the, the medical people and say, no, this will make you feel better. And it, it will, but you're going to still have some issues. I, I really think that these, well, I, I do believe in mind, body, spirit. So, yes, the answer to your question is a big yes. Okay. Well, Dr. Lito, we're kind of uh, running out of, our, out of time here. Uh, so we, we've kept you a little bit longer than we agreed, but... Uh, um, it's been really great talking to you. Um, we've really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm pretty sure our listeners have as well. Um, I'll just give the name of your book again. It's uh, Fear of the Abyss, Healing the Wounds of Shame and Perfectionism. We've all read it here, and it is a very valuable book and a very valuable tool for anybody who recognizes these kind of issues, uh, that they may have them in terms of just overcoming them and giving some control, essentially, of your life back to yourself, because that's what it's about, I think, is people are... Uh, with this condition are essentially not fully in control of their lives uh, because there's a big part missing and uh, this book by Dr. Alita is a, a very useful tool in, in restoring that, um, that control. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for all your work and we hope you keep writing books as well. Yeah, and maybe you'll get it into a hard copy sometime. Well, I'm going to keep trying and thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. No problem. Likewise. Thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for your book. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Well, um, that was good. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed it. We, um, we, we can, I don't know if, if any of our expert panel here has anything uh, uh, extra to add that... Um, uh, because the, the thing about it is that we have read a lot of these kind of books, and mm. Dr. Leder's book is very useful in the sense that it, it comes out from a different angle, and as Neil described, it, it, it uses an, an analogy of, of the spoke and the wheels, and it's, it's very useful to kind of... I mean, you can read so many of these books, and it maybe it's only one of them or even part of one of them that yeah. actually sets yeah. a light bulb off in your head that mm-hmm. relates our, uh, to you specifically. So... Um, I don't know. Yeah, well, and many of our forum members have read it too. And I think one of the things that I liked the most about it was that in a lot of books, you know, you, you can get a lot or, you know, part of the book kind of hits you. But I get the feeling that a lot of people interpret these books with these stories about narcissistic parents or whatever as an excuse to actually, quote unquote, heal the inner child. But what they're actually doing is learning to manipulate better or to become more manipulative, or to have a lot of self-pity, while um, Dr. Alita kind of focuses on, well, you are manipulated. You're not asking, honestly, for example, when you ask for something because you, or when you do something because you want to be loved. 
So acknowledge that you're manipulating and learn that there's a wound to begin with and then learn how to be honest, how to build real relationships and stuff. So I think it really adds something to the collection we've been... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she, she clearly states in her book that the first step is to acknowledge that the abuser was the abuser and you were the victim. You were the victim in the past. And the second step is also to be aware that today you're an adult. And you can be an and abuser you can heal. if you don't. You can be an abuser, but you're not a victim anymore. So you cannot use this past victim status to manipulate and uh, get pity. And uh, yeah. So that's an important point indeed. Yeah, and on, on our point of the question about whether or not if people recognize these kind of PCS traits, which, I mean, it's perfectionism, control, shame, black and white thinking, splitting, as we've discussed on our forum. Um, there are a lot of very common traits that you'll see in, in almost anybody out there these mm-hmm. days. So I think uh, the question of uh, whether or not the, or, or the number of people that might have these issues, there's probably an awful lot to have it to, to some degree on a spectrum, you know. The question of whether or not you need to have therapy uh, either read the book or therapy. Therapy is best then read the book. Um, I think on our forum in particular, the process that we have kind of uh, developed on our forum just of, of sharing information and discussing these is a form of therapy. Okay, it's not uh, face-to-face, but uh, we also try to, you know, uh, you know, do some face-to-face uh, stuff as well, meetings when we can, but um, there is a way for people to... Uh, deal with these kind of issues uh, on our forum, for example, by reading and forming yourself about all of the details, thinking there's exercises in Dr. Lee's book, there's exercises yeah. uh, on our forum from other books. Um, so it is possible. It's not a it's not a, a dire situation where I don't have the money for therapy, therefore I'm screwed mm-hmm. um, and reading the book isn't going to help me type thing. I mean, there is a lot of self-work that can be done mm-hmm. with the right knowledge and with enough knowledge, you can do a lot of self-work and then you can move into actually you know, working with um, other people because technically, if you read enough of these books, okay, Dr. Lee has spent many years and she's a clinical psych- uh, psychologist, but someone who's well enough informed uh, on these issues and on their own issues, if they teamed up with another person, if they had a friend who was, who was interested, they could effectively provide a type of therapy for each other, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it's rare to find a good psychologist, too. Yeah. Yeah. The, the goal, first and foremost, is not to increase your intellectual knowledge, it's to increase your awareness, which is something different. Mm-hmm. And it, we mentioned it briefly while she was on air, but... It's also described in her book um, by way of analogy and, and case histories that it's something subtle, you know, she'll try to explain it to you, but it's not something that can really be read off yeah. the pages of the book. It has to be experienced. And most of the process occurs on an emotional level, on a deep level. Intellect is uh, only a minor part yeah. of the whole thing. And even when you hear those words, perfection, control, shame, it doesn't relate to you, apparently. Maybe, however, you should read the book because it might ring a bell. And but, well, personally, it didn't ring a bell. When I read this title, I thought, well, it doesn't really apply to me. But I will read the book because the show we have to prepare the show. And then while uh, reading and uh, thinking about it, and uh, 
um, I realize that, uh, as you said, it probably relates to, to most of us. And again, there are grades of shade, mm -hmm. di different degrees, different conformation, different shapes. Some are smaller to shame or perfection or the, well, you know, the, the, the organic. Other thing, the, yeah, the other thing is that I think a lot of people um, live such a controlled life where they control their environment so much that they never actually uh, come into contact or never have the experience of an interaction with other people or in a certain type of environment because they control their environment so much. They never had the experience where one of those spokes would be activated, where they would get to see that they do have these issues because mm. they control their lives so much. Yeah. So it can be kind of seamless for them. People can be living in a bubble yeah. like a fish in water and not see that, that the way they're living their life is one of these spokes. And they can say, well, that doesn't apply to me. My life's perfect. Yeah, because you're controlling it so much. Uh, nothing can nothing can get in, and that in itself shows that you've got an issue, and you are living a largely impoverished life in terms of what it could be, because mm -hmm. uh, because you do have this fear. But people can, you know, um, kind of anesthetize themselves to that, to yeah, that fear so much, you know. They refuse to have mirrors from other people, exactly. Basically. And that's part of what our, our work on the forum as well is to the idea of a mirror. We're basically it's not even a mirror. I mean, people need to be willing to actually experiment to put themselves out there and to put themselves in what are essentially for them dangerous positions because, I mean, it'll feel dangerous to them and in the back of their mind they recognize, well, I don't really like that kind of a situation but, and they think that's normal, but it's not normal. You see lots of other people dealing with those situations and you think they're crazy, but that's part of life and, and it can be, a, you can have a much more fulfilling life by opening yourself to those kind of situations and facing those fears, you know. I think one of the key points, too, is something she, uh, Dr. Alita mentioned, is that people have to do it in, an, in a safe environment. And that's kind of what we try to create in our forum. And uh, for those listeners who don't know, we also have a breathing a meditation program. And one of the key factors, it's called Aerioolas. You can find it on ebreathe.org, I believe, or .com. And dot .com. Dot .com. Um, so E E breathe comp. And, and between uh, E E and breathe, either space, either no, no, it's one word. One word. word. Yep. Yeah. So, but the key point is uh, stimulating the vagus nerve, and one of the functions of the vagus nerve, apart from the fact that you will feel better, less stressed, uh, rejuvenated, etc., you will find that safety. Yeah. And that safe environment in which through a series of exercises, you get to release some of those blocked emotions. And of course, it would be even better if you have somebody to share it with, because then you get to actually vocalize, and vocalizing is very important too. But even if you're on your own, if you don't have uh, the means to afford therapy, there are ways mm -hmm. like that one or in the forum, you know, where you can actually build mm -hmm. that relationship, that safe area where you actually, well, the fear doesn't doesn't invade you so much that you don't the dare freeze. to look at it. And um, exchanging, sharing is one essential step for healing. And not only control prevents the sharing, but perfectionism and shame also prevent because if you want to project this perfect image, and if you are ashamed at the same time, you're really not inclined to share your weaknesses because your whole facade of perfection will collapse and you're so ashamed to show that, well, I'm not perfect and uh, I need your help and what do you think uh, about me? Well, even if it's not perfect, uh, maybe we should talk about it. And So it's a kind of a tricky uh, set of traits, this PCS, because 
it hurts you, it hurts others to your inadequate behavior, and it also prevents you from healing somehow because you unclose yourself in this uh, kind of a jail, psychological jail. So it's quite interesting. All right. Well, we're getting near the end of our, our, our a lot of time uh, right now, so I think we'll probably end it there. There's not much more to discuss on the topic or that we can cover right now, so uh, we probably will discuss it further as a result of this show on our forum, so if people want to uh, check that out, they can join in the discussion at cassiepia.org forward slash forum. Um, thanks to... Again, thanks to Dr. Alida Edwards uh, for being a guest on the show and thanks to all our listeners and our chatters and thanks to all of us for putting the show on. <laughs> Mutual And thanks to Joe Flemming for hosting us. Oh, well, then. Thank you, Joe. Great job. <laughs> this was really good. All right, that was great. <laughs> anyway, until next week, folks, uh, have a good one and... Dive into the abyss. Jump into that abyss. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.